This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 37 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, and I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, Medea Benjamin, one of the most dynamic and determined peace activists in the world, co-founder of Code Pink, board member at World Beyond War, and author of several books. I began following Medea's work about 10 years ago, in a time when I was not yet aware enough myself to call myself an anti-war activist. Medea, your outspoken bravery had a magnetic effect on me when I was only beginning to understand why it's important for all of us to become so involved in this cause. If there's one word I would use to describe what you bring to the anti-war movement, I'll use this word, bravery. So thank you, Medea, for being with us and talking with us on this podcast today. Wonderful. It's great to be on with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. One thing that makes your career remarkable, I think, is that you are quite a world traveler. Unlike, say, me, who is usually here in New York City um, on my computer being an activist, I think you've been all over the world for a long time. And this gives you, I think, a lot more authority when you speak of places around the world. So I was very excited by a tweet from you, um, maybe it was about a week ago, about the election in Colombia which you phrased in dramatic terms, and it was a message of good news. And it occurred to me, I have followed this up by learning a bit about what's going on in Colombia. But I think many people are so consumed with news all around the world that they might have even missed the significance of what happened in Colombia. So I'd like to talk to you about a lot of stuff, Medea, but I'd love to start with, tell us tell us wh- why you tweeted um so engagingly about what's going on in Colombia, and can you fill us in on all of this? Well, you said I have an opportunity to travel around the world, and uh, you know sometimes it's a very painful opportunity. I recently came back from uh, Afghanistan, where people are suffering so much. I've been in Yemen, uh, in Iraq, in places where there are ongoing wars, as well as places where there are. Uh, very real conflicts with the United States like Iran or North Korea. But I've also had the opportunity to go to places where uh, you get very inspired by what's happening on the ground. And that tends to be uh, Latin America. Uh, You know, Latin America in the uh, early part of the century in the 2000s had what was labeled a pink tide and you saw a wave of progressive governments coming to power that were putting in place all kinds of redistributive policies and policies that protected the rights of indigenous people and women and uh, all kinds of great stuff. And then they were um, pushed back by right-wing forces that didn't want to see that progress. Uh, And now we're seeing them come back again and hopefully more um, uh, effective, more able to hold on to that power, and also in the most unexpected places, and that is Colombia. Because whereas in other countries, like in Brazil, we had the great progressive governments of Lula followed by uh, Dilma. It looks like Lula will be coming back again in Brazil, which is extremely exciting. Uh, In Colombia, which is another big, powerful country in South America, uh, we haven't seen a progressive government in modern times. It's been the country that's been 
most uh, subservient to the United States, uh, allowing the U.S. to put up military bases there, uh, having governments that are closely aligned with the neoliberal policies, um, and the governments in power have been extremely repressive towards the uh, indigenous community and towards dissenters. Um, and it's uh, just such an incredible uh, gain for the people of Colombia to have Gustavo Petro, who was the mayor of Bogota once and uh, is a, uh, a voice, um, not only him, but his vice president, uh, Francia Marquez, who is a, a black leader, an indigenous leader, a uh, environmental leader, uh, somebody who comes from very uh, oppressed communities, uh, now going to be the head of state and the vice president is just earth shattering for Colombia and for the whole region because of the role that Colombia has been playing uh, in the United States sphere. So this is very exciting, and I think we'll really shake up politics uh, on the continent. Mark, I don't know how much you followed the Summit of the Americas that recently took place in Los Angeles. A, a bit, just a bit, yeah. Well, that's uh, something that takes place once every three years in a different country in uh, the Americas. It hadn't taken place in the United States since the Clinton days in 1994, and Biden was going to be, well, he, he was the host. Uh, he botched it so badly. He yeah. made such a mess of it before he even started because he was determined uh, to decide that three countries, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba, would not be invited. And this caused a backlash from other governments in Latin America, mainly started by the president of Mexico. Mexico, a very, very important country, when the president of Mexico said, um, Biden, if you don't invite all of the Americas, uh, I don't think I'm going to attend your summit. And that had this cascading effect with other countries like Bolivia and Honduras, countries of the Caribbean, uh, that then decided to boycott the summit as well. So it was a terrible move on Biden's part. Uh, yes. And it, it, um, uh, and, and I think now with the winning of Gustavo Petra in Colombia, it's going to shake things up even further because the traditional organizations that govern the, um, the overarching um, alliance for the Americas has been the Organization of American States. And that is a, a, an organization that has been really led by the United States and uh, pushed U.S. policies for decades, and more recently, in the case of Bolivia, supported a horrible coup that led to two massacres. I was down in Bolivia at the time, and it was just uh, heartbreaking to see a progressive government of Evo Morales pushed aside for a right-wing government that gave, gave the police carte blanche to kill indigenous people. Uh, so... You know, that uh, has changed with the progressive government back in Bolivia again, a uh, progressive government that's come in uh, with its in place in Argentina, uh, in Peru. Um, and uh, uh, I mentioned that we will see, hopefully, 
a new government in Brazil taking out the terrible Jair Bolsonaro. Um, so I sure hope so. <laughs> so I, I think that there's going to be a a new day where the United States won't be able to push the countries of the Americas around and uh, won't certainly uh, won't be able to get consensus uh, when it does those kinds of things. Amazing to hear that. I know it's true from following up. And I want to say again, most people I know, you know, I'm not talking about dedicated activists who do this day in and day out, but just people I talk to are not really aware that there is this tide and and how important it is. In your view of Latin America, is there a consciousness within each country of having its own movement? Is there a transcontinental movement? You know, I, I know, of course, the history of, you know, going back to Bolivar, Simon Bolivar, for whom Bolivia was was named, um, you know, that, that there was a, a sense of a, a Latin American movement. Is that, how would you describe the feeling or the patriotism or the progressive um, consciousness in the various parts of that gigantic continent? <laughs> I know it's a gigantic question. Well, it's, a, it's an important question because I didn't realize till I started traveling to Latin America when I was quite young, um, that there is this sense of uh, belonging to a continent, and I would include the Caribbean, uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, and a sense of uh, that these struggles are connected uh, you mentioned Bolivar. He's still extremely important to people in the continent. But then you have other figures like Che Guevara, um, whose picture you see uh, everywhere throughout Latin America on people's T-shirts, on walls, um, uh, at universities. And Cuba, a tiny country of only 11 million people, plays an outside role throughout the continent, mm -hmm. showing a country that stood up to the United States, that despite decades and decades of uh, sanctions, of blockade, of repression, of attempts to overthrow that government through every kind of means that you can think of, from poison pens given to Fidel Castro uh, to the Bay of Pigs invasion, um, there is a sense that uh, those who stand up for sovereignty are respected throughout the region. There's also a sense that the indigenous struggles are ones that cross over borders. Uh, the environmental struggle crosses border, the women's struggle. And as uh, we regress here in the United States, taking away rights that we have yes. had, uh, from the time I was a young woman and taking the way from them away from my children and grandchildren, we see in Latin America just the opposite move uh, with more countries gaining not only the right to choice, but all kinds of other uh, important rights for women. And so I think, yes, there is a, a sense of both nationalism and a sense of internationalism that I find extremely refreshing in Latin America. You know, we're so provincial here in the United States, even though we're a country that's made up of indigenous people and of people coming from all over the world. Uh, and yet it's oftentimes going beyond our borders and particularly to Latin America, uh, that we really get that invigorated sense of internationalism, support for other people's struggles. Uh, you see, for example, in Colombia, 
there were uh, there were delegations of election observers coming in from all over Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, people just elated uh, all over the continent when Petro uh, uh, won the election. Um, so yes, a very much a spirit of um, we care about what happens in our borders, uh, but we believe in a struggle that goes way beyond borders. Wow, so powerful. Um, since this is an anti-war podcast, I'd like to focus on the question of, is there a, a state of, uh, you know, I don't know if I should use the word civil war. Um, you know, I'm, I'm aware of the conflict, the armed conflict that has been going on in Colombia. And um, I wonder how you characterize it. Is this electoral victory uh, a movement towards peace, towards reconciliation of hostile groups? Absolutely. And you're so right. I mean, there has been uh, a war that's been going on for decades and a long peace process uh, that brought people out from uh, the, the rural regions where the war was still going on to say, okay, we're going to put down our weapons and join in the electoral process. And unfortunately, many of those people were then gunned down and uh, the government did not comply with its obligations under the peace process. And that's another reason why this victory of Gustavo Petro, who is once himself a part of a guerrilla movement, is so important to say that we will finally respect this peace process, that everybody who has put down their weapons uh, will be protected by the government and respected by the government. Uh, so hopefully, uh, you know, we know that there will be a big backlash against this new government, just as there is uh, with all the progressive governments that have come to power in Latin America and, and elsewhere, of course. Um, but we're hoping that this time um, it, there will be uh, respect for that um, that peace process, and people of Colombia will finally uh, get a chance to um, move on and face the real problems that we are all facing in the world today. Problems such as climate change, where uh, Colombia has its own um, important struggles to protect its water, protect its forest. Um, and uh, protect the rights of people to live in peace. How would you advise people like me who would like to know more about what's going on outside my own little sphere of, you know, national news to to be, become more aware? Like the fact that you, you agree in characterizing this as a war is a bit startling considering that I don't think most people realize that there are these ongoing conflicts, decade-long conflicts, um, and, and that there, there can be good news. There can be, you know, there can be encouraging moments like this one, but if we weren't aware that the conflict was going on in the first place, it's hard to contextualize the good news. Um, how do you manage to, to have a, such a broad and global view, and what can others do to globalize their, their understanding of what's going on in the world? Well, they can join World Beyond War, which is a great yes. place to start. I was so impressed by the 24-hour peace wave that mm. took place where uh, we celebrated peacemakers around the world as part of the lead up to the uh, NATO summit that uh, was 
about to take place in Madrid. And I think one of the beautiful things about World Beyond War is this whole idea of internationalizing a peace process yes, uh, and helping people uh, connect with groups like the International Peace Bureau uh, in Europe that for many, many decades has brought together uh, organizations to uh, have an alliance for building peace, but is so unknown here in the United States. Uh, I was so impressed by the uh, all the groups that we had a chance to learn about uh, in that 24-hour peace wave that come from the Pacific Islands, from uh, um, uh, from Guam, from Hawaii, from uh, the Marianas, onto the uh, New Zealand, Australia, and all around the world. So uh, that's probably the best way. Uh, mm-hmm. yes. Of course, just seeking out new sources of information. I always find it fascinating to find a new source. Uh, we have such great online uh, places to go for information. Uh, there are um, uh, uh, websites like Common Dreams, uh, all the, um, I, I look at more mainstream ones like The Guardian um, with a, a grain of salt because I think it's getting more conservative. Uh, there's places like, um, uh, if people want uh, to see different points of view, um, you can look at uh, uh, the um, international news sources, some of them uh, uh, TV, some of them online, uh, and you can go from China to Turkey to France 24 to Al Jazeera, uh, just to get a sense of what are people around the world saying about uh, different issues. And um, it's, it is just important for us to break out of our uh, parochial view of things. You know, when if you dare to put on the cable news in the United States, um, you will just get uh, the mirror image from Fox News to MSNBC and even uh, CNN uh, on debates that are going on in the U.S., but you will not get a progressive perspective on them, and you will rarely get any kind of international perspective at all. So that's why our alternative organizations and news sources are so critical. Absolutely. And to me, Medea, you are a news source. Um, it was from you that I learned what happened in Colombia, which shows me I need more news sources. Um, well, and how important Twitter is, because yes, you know, yes. it's, it's really following people that we uh, are, are interested in hearing their perspectives that we're going to get a lot of different sources of news. So that's mm-hmm. a, that's a great example of how to just um, cultivate the perspectives that you're interested in. Yep. And, and that is a lot of what we're about at, at World Beyond War. Um, I think the fact that we are global is a- absolutely central to us, um, that we, we are trying to reach out to every single place in the world. We have signers from every place in the world. I'm glad you enjoyed the 24-hour peace wave. Um, I should say we're, we're speaking in June 2022, and this was an event um, sort of to counter a lot of horribleness going on in the world, especially in Central Europe. And I think we should, we should touch upon 
the Ukraine conflict next. This has been, an, from my perspective, an a- absolute shock and disaster this entire year to to see, um, you know, to to watch the slow build up to a proxy war that it seemed to me both parties in the proxy war were willing to allow to happen at the expense of many Ukrainian lives. It's been a, it's to me absolutely disturbing, shocking, terrifying collapse into war in Europe. That's my perspective, Medea. I'd love to hear your perspective, not only on what's going on right now, you know, in June, but this entire buildup to war in Europe and how you have experienced and understood it. I just uh, finished an article called um, "NATO and a War Foretold" uh, to. Um, it's a takeoff on the Secretary General of NATO's recent comments saying that NATO was actually quite prepared um, to respond to the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, because it had predicted this war uh, months before it happened. And the yes. theme of this article was to say, um, well, he didn't have to wait for a couple of months to predict the war. He could have gone back a couple of decades and uh, went back and really gave a history of the lead up to this war, which is decades old. Um, It certainly doesn't uh, justify the brutal invasion, but we have to uh, give people a sense of how this happened because it also will give us a sense of what's the way forward. And so it is so important to recognize the Uh, provocative, aggressive, militaristic nature of NATO itself that should have dissolved when the Warsaw Pact dissolved in the 1950s and said, okay, job done, Um, Mm -hmm. and instead has been building itself up into not just a North Atlantic uh, treaty organization, but a global one. Uh, And uh, Mark, I don't know how much you've seen what the um, the new strategic uh, uh, concept for NATO is, but right in the midst of this war uh, in Ukraine, it's already saying, yes, well, we know that Russia is our um, number one enemy right at this moment, but let's not forget the real enemy is China. So we here we have NATO already um, moving its sights over to the Pacific. So, um, but going back to the issue of Ukraine, um, it it could have easily been prevented uh, if NATO had not been uh, so determined to break all the promises that it made to Russia that it would not extend to Russia's borders. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that NATO, according to the Secretary General, is so prepared is that NATO has been. Uh, training and equipping forces in Ukraine uh, for since since 2014, since the coup happened there, and so um, uh, the U.S., which really um, sets the direction for NATO, uh, sees this as a way to debilitate Russia. Um, we know that our Congress has been pouring billions and billions and billions of dollars of weapons into this um, to stand by and watch as uh, over 100 Ukrainian soldiers are killed every single day. And uh, you um, have to really uh, marvel at the fact that today uh, we did not have one Democrat in Congress. 
objecting to this. I find this astounding. Um, you know, yeah. where is the Barbara Lee of today? Well, we have to look at the Republican Party uh, then to see uh, that there were some objections to the uh, handing over of this endless, this huge amount of uh, weapons for Ukraine. Uh, I guess it reflects on how uh, debilitated our own anti-war movement is if the uh, Democrats, even those in the squad and the progressive caucus, uh, felt comfortable that they wouldn't be facing a huge backlash from us. And I know there have been protests outside the offices of uh, Barbara Lee and Jim McGovern and others uh, since that vote. Um, but it does mean that we have to uh, get out there and tell our elected officials that we recognize that this war in Ukraine uh, is one that will drag on for years and years and years if we keep feeding the war instead of demanding a negotiated solution. And I think Biden has actually uh, hurt the prospects of negotiations. Boris uh, Johnson in, in the UK has hurt the chances of negotiations. In fact, it was reported that he even went uh, to Ukraine to talk to Zelensky and tell him uh, not to negotiate, to keep the war going, to win, quote. Uh, so we're in a very tough spot um, where, unfortunately, the majority of people in our country are not given the proper education to realize that if they want to really help the people of Ukraine, the best way to do that is to stop the flow of weapons and uh, demand that the leaders of Russia, Ukraine, and Europe sit down and negotiate a solution. I share your disgust at not a single member of Congress speaking sanity, really. Um, I'm not sure what to say about that. I know how important um, the voices in the squad are on other issues, and I don't, I don't have an explanation. To some extent, I wonder if... Um, if we're barking up the wrong tree to think that this government can ever turn its back on its war profiteering ways. And, uh, you know, I sometimes wonder if, if it will not be Congress or a president that ends war, but the people somehow by disabling the, the government. Please respond to that. Well, first, let's recognize that we're at Trump in the White House. We would have a lot of Democrats in Congress on our side to say, you're just feeding this war, uh, we want you to talk peace. Um, when there's a Democrat in the White House, remember when Obama came in, it just sort of destroyed the peace movement. Uh, yes. And the same thing is happening under Biden. So uh, that's one thing that politics uh, and even many of the more mainstream uh, uh, non-governmental organizations that focus on war and peace issues are so tied to the Democratic Party uh, um, that it's very hard to uh, get our momentum going and not have it derailed by partisan politics. Uh, but you're right. Um, uh, governments respond when people make enough noise. And uh, we see it takes a long time, just like the anti-war movement, the Vietnam uh, war days took a long time to come to fruition. Um, and just like the big movements we had in the days of the uh, 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 invasion of Iraq took a long time to have some effect, um, we uh, often get discouraged because we don't see 
the results of our efforts uh, in the short term, but we do see them in the long term. And that's why it's important that we build up our movement, that we uh, hold our uh, elected leaders accountable, that we show our disgust when they uh, look to weapons as the only way to respond to this crisis. Uh, so I think we have to do all kinds of things because we have so few tools in our toolkit. Um, but one of the most important, and this gets back to the, uh, the mission of World Beyond War, is to link up with others in the rest of the world. Uh, right now, yes. for example, you know, Europe is playing such a key role. I mean, this, this, this conflict is a European conflict, and it should be the European um, countries that stand up and find the solutions. And the U.S. should not be um, so involved in this. But in any case, Absolutely. we should be hooking up with um, the movements in these other countries, with the members of parliament in these other countries, um, because it gives us greater strength uh, to show back here at home uh, all of the uh, the um, the elements of uh, of the anti-war movement that exist in Europe right now. And, you know, it's interesting, Mark, because as the summit of NATO is meeting, uh, on the one hand, you could say that NATO is more united than ever. Uh, it's found its new purpose. Uh, it's getting more money than ever because the U.S. budget for military is going up, as are the budgets of many European countries. And we even have Finland and Sweden now who want to join NATO. On yeah. the other hand, you could say that uh, this is, is quickly falling apart because the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia are coming back to bite precisely uh, the people in the countries doing the sanctioning. So here in the United States, every time we put gasoline in our cars or we go to the grocery stores, we're feeling the impact. And the people of Europe are feeling it even more not knowing if they're going to have enough gas to heat their homes come the winter. Uh, and so there is a backlash already happening. Uh, I just was looking at some of a, a poll that recently came out showing divisions within European countries and among European countries uh, uh, of um, people saying, uh, look, we want there to be a solution. Maybe it means that Ukraine is going to have to give up some territory uh, but that's better than seeing this war drag on for years and seeing people all, all over the world going hungry because of the consequences of the grain not getting out, the fertilizers not getting out, and inflation just going up and up. So I just want to conclude this point by saying that I think um, there will be a big show of unity at NATO, but right underneath the surface are a lot of cracks um, with people yearning for an end to the fighting so that their lives can uh, be better off in terms of the galloping uh, inflation and food crisis that is affecting us now. For sure. Um, and, you know, you, you pointed out the, the role of peace negotiation. Um, obviously, here, here on planet Earth, peace negotiation has saved our planet many times. It's how we end wars, is you negotiate and end to war. It seems to me there's a, a weird meme going around since the Ukraine war started that negotiation is, is off the table. 
And, um, you know, when, when I talk to people about the Ukraine war, which I, I always point out is a proxy war, I do point out, as you said, that it could have been prevented with negotiation if, if both parties had shown the slightest willingness to negotiate, and it can still be ended through negotiation. Do you think that it, do you, th- I know obviously none of us can predict the future, not even close. Do you have hope for negotiation or is that, is that off the table? Well, this is the way the war will end. The question is how long will it take? Mm. And uh, there, I think uh, uh, the Russians feel like they are now gaining momentum and taking over more uh, land in the uh, eastern part of the country, creating this land bridge. Uh, and so their feeling is, well, let's keep this going until we're in a better position. And from the Ukraine point of view, uh, you have the same uh, demented kind of momentum, which is to say um, we have to uh, resist even harder. Uh, we have to get more heavy weapons coming in from our European allies that will allow us to push the Russians back, uh, and then we'll be able to negotiate. Uh, but, you know, there have been calls for negotiations by all sides all along, uh, and they have been derailed for various reasons, uh, partly because from the perspective of uh, Europe and, and particularly the U.S., uh, there was an original sense that because the pushback um, was uh, better than expected from the part of Ukrainian resistance, there was this idea that we can win this war, uh, and then it became an issue that we can bleed Russia. And, you know, this is something that's too good to be true for uh, a lot of the people uh, that run this country uh, to see the adversary, uh, Russia, um, really uh, uh, not only lose in Ukraine, but be um, weakened economically and militarily. And so, you know, there is that momentum to keep this war going uh, to make that happen. But as I said, you know, the ones really being affected uh, are uh, the the people of Europe who are feeling these tremendous impact of trying to get off of their dependence on Russian oil gas. Uh, And uh, that's not easy for countries like Germany that have been so dependent um, it's uh, it's a hard sell at this point to their population um, to say, let's keep this war going. So I think negotiations are inevitable uh, and um, uh, let's all do whatever we can so that they come in the uh, coming weeks and months and not in the coming years. My biggest fear is that the weapon sales aspect of this is so profitable that um, that there is not a will to negotiate. There is rather a will to cash in and let the world burn. Um, well, that's right. We didn't talk it, about that part of it. Of uh, you know, really Let's do it. From <laughs> yeah. this. And uh, to see countries like Germany that are now going to be buying F-35s uh, from the United States uh, that are Um, billions and billions of dollars for each of them. I mean, it is just horrific. And um, 
also to see the stocks of the uh, big five weapon companies just soar, to know that the, quote, goal that I always found uh, so perverse of NATO to have every country spend at least 2% of its gross domestic product on the military. Well, there was tremendous pushback in Europe from uh, movements that wanted to keep their healthcare systems and their keep their free educational systems and do want to see more yeah. money going for the military. And now suddenly you see it much, much harder for them. And the um, head of NATO bragging these days that there are now 10 of the 30 NATO countries that have reached the goal of spending at least 2%, uh, as if it's something to be uh, proud of, you know, um, and that's wow. unfortunately, you know, one of the things that that uh, has resulted from Russia's invasion is that we see uh, global military spending just um, soaring. Yeah. I mean, that... That fact right there is is noteworthy, and I'm I'm glad you pointed that out. It makes me realize how how important these conversations are because you have a lot of information I wasn't aware of. Um, I would like to know how because you are a, a a person with so many connections around the world. How is the rest of the world processing this disaster in Europe? And I, you know, I do want to just say for our listeners, we've been talking a lot about um, South America, but as you mentioned, you have traveled extensively to Iran, Afghanistan. I mean, I, I wouldn't even begin to to um, try to describe how worldly I think you've managed to be and how important that is. How do the people who you know um, view what's going on in Europe, because this is something most of us here in the United States would not be able to understand. Well, at all. that's a really, really important question. And um, they view it very differently. Uh, first of all, we can see that there have been a couple of different votes that have happened at the United Nations, um, where there were large numbers of countries that abstained. And in fact, most of them were in the global south. Uh, you have countries like India, Pakistan, China. Uh, there were 16 African countries that abstained. They did so not because they were in favor of what Russia did, but they didn't want to get in the middle of this. Uh, they saw it, as you were saying, as a, as a proxy war between Russia and the, rest, uh, and the West uh, and didn't see that yes. there was any reason for them to take sides. They also... Uh, we're not persuaded that Russia should be cut off from the global system. Um, they thought that publicly condemning Russia would only increase the tensions and reduce the chance of a political se a settlement. But there are also other reasons. And one is the um, global uh, community feeling uh, that the West is so hypocritical when it comes to uh, these kinds of conflicts, that talking about this rules-based order uh, and the need to comply with international law uh, is something that the U.S. and the West have not been very good at doing, let's say. Uh, and other countries can look at the recent history, whether it's the invasions of Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, 
the U.S. support for the war in Yemen, the U.S. Mm-hmm. support for Israel's repression of the Palestinians. And they say, yep. well, why wasn't the U.S. sanctioned uh, in these very same ways that you're talking about doing to Russia right now? And the other thing is to recognize that Russia is a large trading partner um, for many countries like uh, India, Pakistan. In the case of India, it's, it's also the largest uh, military supplier. And while the U.S. was putting tremendous pressure, actually sending envoys to India uh, to get India to denounce Russia, um, India said, you know, well, we're actually um, going to increase our trade with Russia um, because we need that oil and they're selling it to us at discounted prices right now. And Pakistan, which is India's nemesis, said the same thing. Um, we are not interested in the politics. We're interested in the economics and we're just going to go for the best deals. Um, and so we see for a number of different reasons why the international community has stood on the sidelines and not wanted to get involved either in a public condemnation of Russia or more importantly, in sanctions uh, that would hurt their own countries uh, as well as Russia. I do want uh, people to understand that yes, Russia is being hurt by these sanctions and in many different ways. And there is inflation that is hurting people inside Russia right now. And it's uh, uh, not the Russian oligarchs, but uh, poor working class people in Russia that feel the pain. But on the other hand, the Russian government is getting more money in its coffers uh, than before the war, because the war has increased the price of energy. Even though Mm -hmm. Russia is selling less energy, it's making more money from those sales. It's giving discounts to countries like India and China of 30%, and it's still making more money. Uh, So uh, this idea of sanctions really has to be looked at again um, if the country that you're sanctioning is actually benefiting in many ways from those sanctions. Well, you know, unfortunately, the media um, spin immediately after the the initial invasion back in January and February was that um, Russia will the, the spin here in the United States was that Russia will will hopefully lose and there will be a regime change, which is certainly magical thinking. Um, and and really, the media here has never gotten off the message that Russia is a few days away from losing this war, which we know to be simply factually not not based in anything but but wishful thinking um and i think that really prevents a lot of people from from understanding what's going on that we we are hyping this idea of regime change in russia as we've been hyping the idea of regime change in iran and venezuela you know um so anyway I would like to ask you, Medea, this is a sort of broad question, and I'm asking, I'm not even sure exactly how to put this into words, but this is a question that I think some in the anti-war movement might answer one way and some might answer another way. Um, in one sense, a view of what a view of where we are in the world today is that things are getting radically worse. Uh, you know, uh, uh, um, obviously climate change, um, 
rise of global fascism, capitalism, corrupt capitalism just seems to be doubling its its bank every year, you know, in terms of the power that they exert. Um, and, you know, certainly from my, I'm just speaking my personal perspective, 2016 was a year before I learned that an organization called World Beyond War existed. It was after, you know, to me, the shocking collapse of United States civil society in 2016 um, with a, a fascist taking office that to me led to to me be, becoming more involved in, in important causes. And there's one sense that things are just getting worse. And then there's another sense that I also get from a lot of veterans of the peace movement, people who've been around for a while, like, wait a minute, things have always sucked. <laughs> so, so, you know, this is why I'm saying it's a, it's a question that I think many of our friends might answer one way or another. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I think when you're in something in the moment, it seems like the worst that there is. Uh, but remember, this globe has gone through horrors <laughs> of world wars and Holocaust yes. and um, uh, moments of just uh, tremendous despair. Uh, I myself, you know, have gone through movements like the uh, the Vietnam War movement where it seemed like um, you know how could our country sink any lower um, so mm -hmm. I think um, in terms of the environmental crisis we're we're at a um, uh, a an unprecedented point um, that you can't go back in history and look at and say it was worse back mm -hmm. then because it's just getting worse every day. So I think there is an issue where um, we have to put um, tremendous attention um, to uh, to finding ways to uh, force the powers that be and the big oil companies um, to stop destroying our planet. But in terms of other areas, um, we are making gains as a global community. And um, I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but when I was out in the streets with the Poor People's Campaign that happened recently in Washington, D.C., and seeing people from all different walks of life coming together to say, we understand the connections between poverty and racism and militarism and the environmental crisis, uh, and we're putting our faith-based perspective uh, into building a movement to address those, um, that gives me tremendous hope. When I was in LA recently at what was called the People Summit, which was the alternative to uh, Biden's Summit of the Americas, and saw people that work on issues of immigration reform and uh, police brutality and uh, racism and uh, anti-war coming together and feeding from each other's enthusiasm, uh, it gives me tremendous hope as well. I think one despairs when you're sitting in your home on the computer uh, looking at miserable news. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that when you're actually out and about, uh, um, the world seems different. I live very close to the Supreme Court. And since the horrible Roe v. Wade uh, overturned. Yes, uh, I've been um, going out there 
to just see what's happening outside the the court. And it's um, in the beginning, it was the uh, people who were enthusiastic about the overturn uh, who were holding the their their um, gatherings there. And now, of course, it's been pl- completely overtaken by uh, people who want to see women have their rights back. And, um, and, yes. and, and so, you know, just going there and seeing all these young women who are absolutely determined and saying we refuse to go back, um, that in itself is inspiring. So I would just say um, we're not worse off than we've been at other points in our history. Um, but um, the only way to change it is to keep building stronger movements. And the only way to be part of that is to get out and do it. Uh, and not be overcome by the sense of despair uh, that only helps um, those who, who profit from uh, war and division and misogyny um, to uh, keep getting the upper hand. I certainly feel that myself every time I join any type of protest, any type of action. It's it's sustaining. It's a sustaining practice to go out there. And I, I know that I'm fortunate that I can go out there and that I can feel relatively safe, even though these days in the USA, you have to worry about getting run over by a car, which is, I think, legal in some states now to run over protesters with cars. But um, I I would like to, um, since you mentioned the the Vietnam War era, this is actually a question I've, I have not asked you, Medea, even though it's my favorite question to ask on this podcast, even though you've been on this podcast before, um, speaking about the, the Bolivian election a couple of years ago. How did you get started? And what what made you who you are as a protester? I know that's a well, big it's question. it's actually an easy answer for me because I was in high school in Long Island, New York. Um, my older sister who was two years older, uh, her boyfriend was sent off to Vietnam, and he uh, started writing her these very strange letters. And at about six months, sent her a package, which she was all excited opening it up. And it was a uh, ear of a Viet Cong with a, um, a, a piece of leather around it to put around her neck. And I was just absolutely disgusted by wow. it. Went in the bathroom and threw up and said, uh, I'm going to do something about uh, a, a system that sends uh, nice young men to places they know nothing about to kill people they know nothing about and uh, and then think that a body part is a um, uh, is, is a jewel. Wow. And yeah. um, so I started an anti-war movement in my high school and have been active ever since. And I think um, sometimes it's those personal experience where we see a good person turn bad, in that case, her her high school boyfriend, um, that makes us realize what war does to people and why it's so important to try to stop it. Wow. Um, I, I definitely had not heard that story. By the way, I don't, not, I'm sure you don't remember, Medea, the first time I met you and I was so excited to meet you, I actually asked you, this was in um, Washington, D.C. at a no World Beyond War conference. I asked you if you ever thought of writing an autobiography. And you said, I don't, I'm not sure I can remember everything. Exactly. I have a terrible memory. Uh, plus, you know, it just seems like a, a little too self-indulgent, but uh, perhaps. 
I, I would disagree. I mean, I've read Gandhi's autobiography many times. You, 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 you know, you deserve to own your very distinctive work, but I'm sure it's, I'm sure you're too humble to, to take that, um, you know, well, on face value, very, but the world would benefit you, from it. I turned it. in a book yesterday with my co-author, uh, Sandy Davis, on Ukraine, mm-hmm. and I'm very excited to it finish that oh, and great. Uh, look yes. forward to getting it out and uh, talking to people about that. One purpose of this podcast is to personally inspire and energize and fortify people um, with the example of, of other peace activists. So, you know, I do think understanding how how you do what you do, Medea, is helpful to others. And I would like to, I'm, I'm really curious, I'm asking this for my own curiosity, how what are the characteristics that you think you have or that you have nourished in yourself, not necessarily born in yourself, but what is it that makes a person a really dedicated, hardworking, serious, relentless peace activist for decades? What is, what is it that makes that happen? Having your feelings be exposed all the time so that if you learn by reading in a newspaper or uh, online or watching a, a TV clip of some atrocity that's happened that you just don't pass it over, but say, oh my God, um, what can I help do to stop that from happening again? Or um, uh, feeling like, um, yeah, getting angry uh, at things to the point of just not being willing to let it go, uh, being able to turn that anger into positive energy so that other people are going to want to join you. <laughs> Cause if you just keep mm-hmm. it on that level of the, uh, of the anger, it's not very inviting. Uh, so right. yes, how can we turn the anger into positive energy and uh, and then I would say always maintaining a sense of curiosity that you want to learn about other issues, other movements. That's why I said to you, I was so excited to see the peace wave because I learned about new movements, new people, new strategies, uh, keeping that openness to doing things differently. And I know as we yes. coming to the end of this, I, I think to recognize that um, we have to have new strategies now that a lot of the strategy that we have been using um, doesn't work anymore. The ways of waging war has changed uh, because of us, uh, because we had a vibrant peace movement after Vietnam. There's no draft. Um, they don't want our mm. uh, high school sweethearts sent off to war. Uh, they want to use drones and uh, high tech weapons to Uh, kill other people without Americans getting killed. Uh, They want to hide the wars from us so that while Ukraine is an exception, in most cases, we don't see what's happening, where our weapons are being used. Um, I think um, so demanding answers to learn more about things, to hear more about people's struggles, to learn directly from the victims themselves, when and if possible to actually go there and meet people. Um, this is taking us back to the beginning of our conversation, but you know, there's nothing that can substitute for being in the home of a woman in Yemen and hearing her talk about how her 
children joined Al-Qaeda because they hated their government. Uh, and then she found that they had been killed by U.S. drones. And she said, my kids drawn, joined the wrong gang. Don't you have gangs in the U.S.? And would you want a foreign country to come in and murder them? Or would you want a chance for them to be reeducated? Uh, things like that, you know, you'll, you'll, you can never really read about um, talking to people directly and changing your whole perspective uh, on how you hear and, uh, and, and react to what's going on in the world. Wow. Well, I love these answers. And yes, we are, we are winding down, um, even though we could go on for a long time. And I do hope you'll someday write that autobiography. Um, I would like to know, is there any in your, in your coming to, you know, who you are today? Um, was there any book, writer, philosopher, musician, you know, religious figure? Any, was, was there something that put it together for you that you want to recommend to others? Is there a, you know, a, a song or something like that? What, you know, that inspires you? Well, when I was in high um, school, I read a book by Walter Rodney called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And it just blew my mind because, uh, you know, I thought of Africa as the poor continent where people weren't educated and you know, reading about the European exploitation and enrichment uh, on the backs of the African people was something that uh, really was so revelatory wow. to me and made me question how my government got rich from uh, other countries' resources and other and indigenous resources. Anyway, so I love that book. And uh, he's a, a, a now deceased Caribbean writer songs. Um, I love Emma's Revolution. Our friends Pat and Sandy are constantly giving us um, new songs that inspire. And I saw them in um, concert just about a week ago. And one of their older, perhaps most um, famous song is the one, um, we're all swimming in the same river. Uh, we're all tossed by the very same rain. And um, it's a beautiful song that talks about how we are all in this together. And uh, I think it's important to remember that as we move forward in our different paths, uh, if our path is one towards uh, justice, uh, compassion, uh, love for each other, um, that we are swimming in actually a beautiful river uh, and that we have so many wonderful people all over the world uh, that we are part of this um, part of this journey with. What great words to end with. I don't think I'll try to top that. Um, I, I just want to say I never heard of Walter Rodney. So we will put that name and that book in our show notes. And Emma, I do know Emma's Revolution. They're awesome. Thank you so much, Medea. You've given me a little bolt of confidence and faith and, you know, hope today, um, as well as realism and resolve. And that's what I think Wonderful. you bring to people Thank every day. Interview and have a lovely day. <laughs> Put out the fire Put out the fire Our house
house is on fire Listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.